Good afternoon and welcome to Walking the Talk, a conversation with CLA grads using their influence for social change. This conversation is part of the What's Next series of roundtables hosted by the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Minnesota. Thank you for joining us. My name is Megan Mell. I'm the Director of Alumni Experiences and College Events at the College of Liberal Arts. Before we begin, I first want to acknowledge that the University of Minnesota Twin Cities is built within the traditional homelands of the Dakota people. And it is important to acknowledge the peoples on whose land we live, learn, and work as we seek to improve and strengthen our relations with our tribal nations. We also acknowledge that words are not enough. We must ensure that our institution provides support, resources, and programs that increase access to all aspects of higher education for our American Indian students, staff, faculty, and community members. I'd now like to move to this afternoon's roundtable discussion. Following the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, the marches, the protests, and the calls for change, the College of Liberal Arts asked, what's next for us to eliminate institutional and systemic racism in society? Today's conversation is part of a series of roundtables to address this important question while engaging experts from the College of Liberal Arts, as well as our community. There are many CLA alumni doing important work around racial justice and equity, and we've invited four alums to this conversation to share their experiences in answering the call for racial justice and helping create a path forward in a variety of ways. Our moderator for today is Professor Keith Mays. Professor Mays is an Associate Professor of African American and African Studies at the University of Minnesota and a Horace T. Morse Alumni Distinguished Teaching Professor. Holding a PhD in history from Princeton University, his professional interests include the civil rights and black power movement, education policy and history, black holiday traditions, and racial equity and critical ethnic studies pedagogy. Professor Mays authored the book Kwanzaa, Black Power and the Making of the Amer African American Holiday Tradition, and is currently working on The Unteachables, Civil Rights, Disability Rights, and the Origins of Black Special Education. Professor Mays also established the Mays Educational Group, LLC, which provides consultant professional development and training services in the areas of racial equity, curriculum development, ethnic studies and social studies, and special education. Professor Mays, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Megan, for having me, for inviting me to, to do this with the panel of distinguished alumni. How are you guys doing? It's so good to see you. It's been a long time. Great to see you. But I've been following each and every one of you guys, and you guys have been doing great work. So I want to start by uh, reading the introductions of each and every one of you, because I think that the audience needs to know not only who you are, but what you've been doing uh, in the past five to 10 years. And it's just my honor to, to read these biographies. After I read the biographies, I'm going to go right into introduction, and we will begin our conversation. Ernest Comer III is Associate Director of the African American Leadership Forum. He is co-leading the organization and driving leadership development initiatives for the Black community. As an entrepreneur, professional, philanthropist, and author, he is dedicated to connecting businesses and individuals to resources for continuous learning and enrichment. Ernest is a career advancement strategist with more than a decade of experience encouraging highly effective solutions to meet exceptional standards and create unforgettable experiences. A husband, a father of two, Ernest is passionate about personal and professional growth. 
uh, wellness as well as education. He works to provide greater exposure to unpopular examples of leadership, influence and success, helping people get further faster while being more satisfied in the work that they do. Thank you, Ernest, for being here. Next is Susie Hewitt. She has found success in male-dominated industries such as sports and entertainment and the technology sector. Following a long career working in professional sports, managing talent and brand, Susie, Susie is currently a senior lead marketing manager for Lumen Technology, formerly CenturyLink. Over the years, Susie has worked with executive leadership to change habits, transform management styles, and identify ways for these individuals to create a more inclusive, healthy, and balanced environment, both at work and at home. Susie is passionate now more than ever to help people of color and women become their authentic selves and walk through life in corporate, corporate America with a purpose. It's so nice to see you, Susie. Thank you for, for being here as well. Amber Jones is originally from Chicago, Illinois, and has lived in the Twin Cities for the past nine years. She is currently the outreach coordinator for the Council for Minnesotans of African Heritage, an agency of the state of Minnesota. She possesses over 10 years of community engagement, advocacy, and leadership experience. She has worked in various public and nonprofit industries, including education, community and economic development, museums, and state government. Amber has done everything from leading community engagement initiatives in large institutions to build better relationships with African-American communities, to organizing several policy and advocacy campaigns for systemic change at multiple levels of government. She is committed to increasing access and participation in social, economic, and political processes among communities of color to cultivating the next generation of leaders and to encouraging unity and self-determination among people of African descent. Amber graduated summa cum laude from the University of Minnesota Twin Cities with a BA in African American and African Studies and a minor in political science. And last, certainly not least, is Toussaint Morrison. He is a writer, filmmaker, and community organizer, hailing from New Orleans and raised in South Minneapolis. Morrison pivoted from his initial passion for theater and into moderating intervention-based forums across the country, addressing racism, sexism, sexual assault, substance abuse, and transphobia. His work has now shaped into a public media outlet as on-site public media where he hosts forums in communities to discuss tough topics and also leads marches, addressing social justice. Thank you, Brother Morrison. Thank you, Sister Amber, for being here. It is my pleasure. So I want to start off by reading an introduction just to kind of set the context, and we want to go right into the discussion. COVID-19, a deadly strain of the coronavirus, appeared to be on its way of declaring the year 2020 as its own. Even though there have been other novel coronaviruses in the last 100 years, COVID-19 emerged as the deadliest pandemic since the swine flu of 1918. With over, over 2, 200,000 America, Americans and counting claimed as its victims by the third week of October, COVID-19 may not be the biggest story of the year. The murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis at the near of a police officer sparked a national protest movement in a presidential election year. 
Floyd's murder not only highlighted the broken relationship between law enforcement and black citizens in Minnesota, it drew attention to other acts of police violence across the United States, principally Breonna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky, and Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, as so many others. With the spreading virus as a backdrop, the reoccurring violence of racism against black citizens has equally, equally, equally been labeled a pandemic. Though deadly viruses ebb and flow in American history, the pandemic of racism remains constant. If scientists are quickly working on a vaccine for COVID-19, then who is working on eliminating the virus of racism in the United States? If scientists are quickly working on a vaccine for COVID-19, my question is who is working on eliminating virus, the, the virus of racism in the United States? That's longstanding that's continuous, that's every day, that's weekly, that's monthly, and it doesn't occur every 10 years or 100 years or so. So with that as a backdrop, I wanna ask my first question to the panel. How has the death of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and the disproportionate effects of COVID-19 on communities of color impacted your work as alumni? Has it accelerated the work you were already doing or has it changed it in a drastic way? So I'm gonna start by throwing that out to either Amber or Susie. Which one of you guys wanna take that first? All right. All right. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you to the college. Thank you to the panelists. Thank you to my old teacher. Um, and mentor, professor. You said oh there. You said, oh, you see how good I'm still looking. <laughs> you're getting a little bit, you know, you're getting a little bit I short. can't control, anyway. I can't control the gray. Nothing I can do with the gray. Comes wisdom. Anyway. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you for allowing me to be in this space. Um, so when I think about the question um, and how has it accelerated the work um, I find it very interesting how I even um, came into this position um, at the council. And I transitioned um, into the council at the beginning of the pandemic. And so um, when I stepped into the role, I immediately had to hit the ground running because we were managing like the response to the pandemic and the legislature and the executive leadership were trying to figure out what to do, <laughs> like what to do. All we are thinking about a pandemic, but it's affecting literally every aspect of our lives, right? And so it's affecting employment, it's affecting housing, it's affecting so many different um, spaces in our life. And so just as we were starting to get a little bit of I wouldn't say relief, but it started to, we started to get into a groove of how we can start to respond um, to this global health crisis and how it's affecting Minnesotans, how it's affecting Minnesotans of African heritage in particular, because um, if you look at the statistics, I encourage everyone to go onto the, the uh, state of Minnesota's website um, to see the statistics um, regarding COVID-19, not just with the actual cases um, and the rates of hospitalizations and ICU beds and deaths, but also the employment numbers, also all of these other factors as well. 
people of African heritage have been disproportionately affected by this virus, affected by this pandemic, um, both in direct and indirect ways. Um, so just as we were starting to get a handle of like trying to um, respond to this pandemic um, is when the murder of George Floyd occurred. And um, when I tell you I've, I've been connected to um, the movement for Black Lives and I've been um, observing a lot of the different local and national incidents around police involved shootings for a long time. And there was very something very particularly different. Um, knowing how our communities were already being affected in so many different ways by this pandemic and how that was already affecting our survival as a community. And then on top of that, we had to deal with another life taken from us um, in one of the most egregious ways. Um, and for that to be here in particular in our backyard, um, it's just, it was a, a, a different weight that was being carried, a different urgency that's being carried. And so as we look forward to the next year or so, there's so many things in the balance that we can talk about throughout this conversation from the investigation um, into the department, from um, the trial itself, from we're gonna go into a legislative session into the, in the spring and there will be conversations about how to address public safety issues on in law, right? Um, and so there has been a huge acceleration, a huge acceleration because I think a lot of us in Minnesota know that the world is watching like the world is literally watching Minnesota um, of all the places in the world, right? <laughs> that the world could be watching. They are watching us and how we, um, how we act and what do we accomplish in, in trying to have some semblance of justice for this man and his family. Um, and so did I expect to feel that going into this new role? Absolutely not. Um, but the weight and the responsibility is there. Um, and I do feel like, especially going through the department as an undergraduate, that I've been well, um, well prepared by my teachers um, and well prepared by community members to be able to step into this space with a level of confidence that we can carry on this work as a community. So I'll stop there, but. Susie. Sure. And Professor Mays, just to echo what Amber has already shared, thank you for allowing us to, to be here. And thank you to CLA for actually having these conversations that are um, probably uncomfortable for some. And I would, I would say for me, um, the death of George Floyd and, and Professor Mays, thank you for meeting with some of us while we were in town. Um, even though we have left the Twin Cities and we have moved on to new communities and new ventures in life um, that hit differently, right? Um, Brianna Taylor and, and all of the other injustices that we've seen um, has almost felt, obviously it's a huge loss in our community, but George felt like that was our brother and that was our family. Um, and, and I'll tell you just uh, briefly, um, as my city was burning down and Minneapolis is still, the Twin Cities is still home for me. As my city is burning down, I'm on a two hour staff call 
um, with my entire team and, and the role that I played within my organization as a, a, a leader is I am the culture person, right? Everyone is on camera and they expect me to perform and be on the whole time um, and to talk about results and the success and um, how, you know, what our trajectory is looking like. That call was probably the most painful thing that I recall ever having to do um, during my tenure here at, at CenturyLink because, or Lumen Enterprises, my apologies, um, I'm watching the report of what's happening in my city, but I'm almost having to carry a completely different um, personality and experience with my colleagues. Um, the, the pressure of having to compartmentalize my personal life from my professional life was probably the most difficult thing that I've had to do. Um, I remember getting off the call and there's a group chat of um, our girlfriends that are also U of M alums just being completely torn about what was happening and how do we show up at work? How am I expected to be at my best and perform at my best if I'm not at my best? Um, so I ended up um, going to go be with one of my girlfriends who was, who was in Connecticut, also struggling with what was happening with um, our city and our community under attack and deciding I am going to, for the first time in my entire career, talk about the racial disparity and how this what's happening in the Twin Cities is impacting my work. So I drafted a communication to my VP of marketing to say, um, I need a mental health week. And this is why that is, right? I wanted to go back and help rebuild my community. I wanted to go back and participate in the protest because what was happening in our community doesn't just happen within our community, it's actually happening within the four walls of the places that we work in. Um, it gave me a week to go back, deal with my emotions and to be able to um, kind of collect my thoughts, reset, and then determine what, how I was going to bring that to my workplace. While I was on vacation um, in Minnesota, volunteering and participating in the protests, um, I hosted a couple of calls with my leadership. This is the first time I've ever brought up the topic of race. Um, within a very male dominated industry. It is white middle-class, um, you know, white men dominate our industry. To be able to say as an African-American female, you've only seen me as Susie Hewitt in the workplace, but there is a whole nother passion that drives what I do. Um, and it, it took for me to go to my leadership to say, these are conversations we have to have. We need a listening circle because what I realized is it wasn't just me that was being impacted, my colleagues were also impacted. Um, how this accelerated what we were already doing, my, uh, my previous role as a chief of staff to an EVP um, was really driving the culture of our company, looking at performance and pay and results. And we've never talked, when, we, when you're looking at the culture of a company, race, sex, you know, socioeconomic status were ones that we could never talk about. They were taboo within corporate America. What happened with George Floyd forced us to have those conversations. We were able to see the disparity in our pay, the dis disparity in performance, the disparity in a whole school of things, right? Um, what I realized is I couldn't live two separate lives anymore and that I needed to hold myself accountable that the organization that I live in, I have an incredible opportunity to influence my leadership to become better leaders. And we can't hide or um, compartmentalize a very significant part of our everyday life. Those folks that are on these calls today, 
we do live in these communities and my struggle can't only be my struggle. This is a, a human rights issue. So um, Keith, I would say the, how this impacted our performances, um, having the initial discussion with my immediate organization and really asking our leadership to go and look at how we're going to do um, business moving forward. Two weeks later, there was a communication that came out from our CEO that um, CenturyLink, now Lumen, is hiring a diversity and inclusion um, chief diversity officer that the company was going to look at how we were going to evaluate our performance, how we are um, identifying our disparity within our employees, because what was happening in the community definitely was playing a role within our leadership. You had managers that probably should have been um, performance managed that were kind of going under the radar as just bad managers, but technically there were biases and impacts to that organization structure. So I think, um, Keith, sorry, we're getting a little long-winded on this topic, no, but fine, um, I, I, I would say as individuals, for me, I what I felt was um, a personal passion of mine needed to become an organizational strategy of how I bring that to my workplace because we our voice is not heard in you know within the four walls of corporate America. Let me just follow up, and you don't have to answer it right now. Uh, but do you think that organizational strategy of of making social justice a permanent feature of uh, not only your corporation, but all corporations and institutions. Do you think that that will be something that uh, that it's a reality going forward? You don't have to answer that question. Now, I just want to bring Ernest into, San, in, into the conversation, but I want us to just sort of grapple with that. Is this, uh, is this the status quo forever broken and we're, we're now on another path uh, inside these white institutions and inside PWIs or will it go back to, to the way it was? Either one of you brothers can pick it up where sisters left off. Can you repeat the question just really quick? So the question was, uh, uh, how has the death of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor and the disproportionate effects of COVID-19 on our communities impacted your work as an alumnus? And has it accelerated your work or has, it, uh, has your work uh, made a sea change as a result of what is taking place this year? Oh, it was the, it was the second half that I, that I needed repeating. Um, it's, affected, uh, it's affected my work to be short about it. I was working for um, Twin Cities Public Television, PBS, and we had, a, uh, we had a show that was gonna come out called News From Scratch. I'd been doing a show for them called America From Scratch, which was about civic engagement. Um, and there had been several problems uh, in that in that already where race just wasn't addressed. Um, and Floyd was uh, murdered on a Monday. Uh, PBS had not said anything for that week. And uh, I was working social media for Denord Distillery, one of the first black owned distilleries in the country. And they said, we got to make a statement on Thursday, which basically says, you know, if you want to take the building, take the building, you know, burn it down uh, because there's a bigger problem here. And I started going into the street with uh, camera people and just filming, uh, just kind of thought pieces and interviewing people at Minnehaha and Lake where I grew up and um, just started doing that. And we did a piece outside of Dunor Distillery that said, here's a distillery that said something about Floyd before a public media company has. Um, and then I uh, went to 
the Capitol that Sunday, six days after Floyd was murdered, and um, spoke at the Capitol and released a video uh, regarding PBS. And um, what happened with my work in short was there was a, there was my boss had basically said, hey, we don't know if we'll be able to work with you because of your activism. And I said, oh, this is the, the video that I made about, you know, PBS. They said, no, you speaking at the Capitol, which then made it very clear and easy for me as a black person to say, I don't want to be in that space. So it's, it's some situations where, you know, it you understand what the company stands for and it it is what it is. You know what you're getting into. However, uh, with this particular situation, how it expedited my work or expedited my my exit out of that and into what I'm doing now is because speaking at the Capitol brought into question my employability at a said public media institution, I was just like, I, it, it was very clear, oh, I'm, I'm out. I don't want to be here. Um, and it's that case of like what W.E.B. Du Bois says with, with double consciousness, and Susie kind of spoke to it as well, in that, okay, I'm watching all of this happen with, with George Floyd, and now I'm having to be at this this meeting. And it's this double consciousness where we are Americans and we're in this like mode of like, you know, our capitalistic workspace, but then we're also black Americans. And we're like, we're experiencing the trauma of watching one of our own be experience a modern day lynching uh, on television broadcast everywhere. And you have, in, in my experience, my company was basically like, yeah, we don't know if we can work with you because you said something about it. So that made it very easy for me to leave PBS and then start um, a public media company called Onsite Public Media, where we've purchased cameras and we employ a majority of BIPOC folks in media and we turn the cameras over to community members and say, you, you, let's film your story, let's film your forum, whatever it is, we'll film it and actually, you know, be a public media company. So that's, that's, um, that's kind of the, the, the long and short of what's happened uh, with my work over the, the, the past few months. Um, so first I am blessed to have an opportunity to have, uh, positions of leadership and organizations like the African-American leadership forum and the university of Minnesota's black alumni network. And having positions of leadership within those organizations put me, puts me squarely in the middle of uh, just a ton of energy, especially in the situation where we see um, the, murder of the, the murder of George Floyd. Um, and, you know, that murder activated the community, right? And so when I, work for organizations and work through organizations that serve the community, especially in the context of leadership, naturally I'm personally accelerated in the work that I'm obligated to do, honored to do, um, and positioned to do. So as the community is activated, you know, the, the forum comes together, our team is small and mighty, we've got a staff of, um, four, four and a half, jokingly. Um, we've got a public allies, AmeriCorps member on the team. Um, so we got a, a staff of four and a half um, and just a ton of volunteers and a network of, you know, 400 contributors and um, folks who are engaged in community in different ways. 
And what we realized was what was needed immediately. So, situation where trauma uh, in several different contexts, trauma, the trauma of, you know, a loss of life, the trauma of, you know, experiencing and, and living through a pandemic. You know, we recognize the, the value and importance of bringing healing to the community that is surviving these times. Um, what we saw happening was in, in the community be growing more active and being accelerated and uh, engaging in protests, engaging in bringing voice to the, to the pain that was being experienced that, you know, people, the people who were leading, the people in our community didn't have an opportunity to breathe, didn't have an opportunity to thrive in their humanity, right? And while we marched through the streets chanting Black Lives Matter, if that's what we believe, then why not yours, right? Why not your life? Why can't you be at home celebrating birthdays why can't you be, you know, having fun with your family and, you know, celebrating good times and enjoying the day, enjoying, you know, um, life. So we went to work inviting organizations to collaborate on different initiatives. Um, we kicked off a series of uh, virtual town hall events where folks got to learn more about what's happening with COVID-19 and what's What's uh, what's happening in community? What it, what different initiatives were being developed and where resources were flowing? Uh, you know, it, literally hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars being poured in a community, into a community that wasn't necessarily uh, directly asking for that type of investment at that time, created this situation now that we're still trying to recover from, where you know, it's beautiful to have access to these resources. Also puts us in a challenging situation where we don't understand a, how to leverage the resources that we have access to and B, how to best um, ensure that the community that we work to serve truly benefits from the resources that we intend to distribute to that community. So all that to say, uh, yeah, my, my work was certainly accelerated. Uh, and in so many different ways, because, you know, outside of my regular nine to five space, being a presidential co-chair for the Black Alumni Network, you know, we recognize the responsibility of our organization to speak truth to power, to acknowledge the, um, the valuable decisions that were being made by, you know, current, the present university leadership, um, as well as the missteps that we saw happening and um, truly appreciate the work of, you know, students, you know, the first black student body president who stepped up and, you know, offered up that these are the things that are needed by the student body. And we recognize and appreciate that the University of Minnesota was, was uh, responsive to those, uh, to those statements. And we recognize the opportunity to do more, to shift more, to, to do better and create a different type of environment for students, for faculty, for alumni, et cetera. Um, so that's that's where I'm at, man. Um, 
if so Black follow- Lives Matter, why not yours? Absolutely. No, I, I hear that. So let me follow up because all of you guys kind of touched on this question. This wasn't on the original script. So what's going to uh, make the University of Minnesota continue to respond and, and not allow things to go back to the status quo? Tucson talked about PBS and maybe PBS was not ready. Uh, the state of Minnesota, Amber, Susie Lumen Technology. I mean, what's, what's, what's going to stop these PWIs from saying that, okay, when, when the fa- fanfare dies down, when, when the activists go home, uh, when there hasn't been a police uh, killing in a, in a few months, you know, things will go back to, to, to normal and we will, not, we will not continue to do the work that the, the community was pressing us to do. What's, what's gonna prevent that from happening again, I surmise? I guess I'll hop in. I think we as a, we have to continue to continue to grow our base of of supporters, of accomplices, of allies in all spaces, because we can't just do this ourselves. We didn't create this problem. We as in people of African heritage or people of color or indigenous people, we didn't create this problem. We didn't create racism, but we are affected every each and every day. And um, the more that we are building solidarity across um, communities, the more that we're building solidarity across um, sectors, we, this problem of race, systemic racism affects every like facet of our lives. Our policing is just one facet, right? Um, but it affects every facet of, of our lives and make no mistake is even this conversation about policing is affecting our government on all levels. It's affecting our decision-making structures that affect every aspect of our lives on all levels. Um, I've had to, now that I'm in this role in government, pay more attention to um, what is being um, conversed about in our halls of government, what laws are being put, what bills are being put up to potentially be passed. on all, from all different political backgrounds. Um, and this is a conversation um, that is affecting our, it's gonna affect our lives in so, in so many different ways. And we already know that. Um, but in order for us to effectively be able to move systemic change, we have to be able to, a lot of people will say turn protest into power. We need to be able to hear the cries of the oppressed and use our spheres of influence to do whatever we can to move that forward. We have Tucson here. Narrative building is so essential. Like reclaiming our narrative is so essential to this work. And so like his work is very essential. Being able to carry that work into the corporate space because you know, as Susie is doing, it's so very essential. Being able to, to be a community leader that's really holding the weight of so many of our people, our young people, our activists, as Ernest is doing, is so important. And being in the space where we have to take all of this and make something of it and actually govern and actually like figure out how to make our communities and our states and our country move forward is also important. And so I think for a lot of time, for a lot of the conversation we sometimes have um, in different spaces, we may only be focusing on like a couple of areas, um, but it's important to know that you have a sphere of influence 
And if you are in a space where you can influence people, use that influence. Even if it's five people, use that influence. If it's 500, use that influence. Um, and And don't allow an opportunity to pass by in whatever institution you are in to be able to use that influence to move change. If it's in the institution of higher ed, if it's in whatever institution that you're in, Um, And we have to stay vigilant because the uprising was in June, but they are, we're in October and they're already preparing to go into another session or another, we're going to local city elections in Minneapolis next year. There's already preparation coming to take whatever happens in the uprising and to move forward whatever agenda certain people have. Um, that can be on any side of the spectrum. It's already happening. And so we have to stay, we, it's tiring. We have to take care of ourselves, but we cannot bow out of the fight. That's why we need an ecosystem. If I step in while you're tired, I can hold it down until you get up again, then I can go take my rest too. I firmly believe in the ecosystem and making sure that we are all in alignment about how we move this work forward. If I can jump in that um, and and, and piggyback off of what Amber said, I think the work that Amber and Tucson and our activists that that are on the front line doing the work um, is the reason why we can go into corporate America and be confident that um, our leadership is now being informed that there is coverage in what is happening in our cities, right? So the, the racial disparity isn't just what's happening in in you know, South Minneapolis, it has opened the eyes and the lens of our leadership to say, hey, we need to reevaluate what's happening within our four walls of this corporation. And they were open to learning and they were open to hearing, right? Is this the same experience taking place within our organization? It came from top down, right? Our CEO said diversity is going to be a huge initiative for us, but he owned it and said, hey, I may need to be more informed. I need to learn. I need to take time out to understand this. So what it's to your point, Keith, of like, you know, are we going to go back to where, you know, we were? Is this just a trend? Um, I, I hope to God not, right? I think what George Floyd's death and the movement, right? I don't want to just keep calling it. I don't want this to be a George Floyd thing. This is a movement that's been accelerated because of that murder. I think what it has done, and even this administration, is it has unveiled the dark, ugly truth of the society that we all live in. I think it was compartmentalized. It was just us and our, it was a Black struggle. It was a Black community issue. It wasn't a human issue. So what I would say from a a corporation standpoint, for a company like ours that Um, I can say, I think we felt like we were doing the right things within the development of creating a great culture, but I don't think we knew the value of what diversity means, right? Diversity in our workplace wasn't only just the right thing to do. Um, It allowed us to create efficiencies and and, and be effective and be able to have individuals that come to the table um, to make difficult decisions and smart decisions and so we were able to really prioritize the power of diversity and how that connects, connects back to our results. So if at the senior level, you don't have a diverse leadership team, that starts to really impact your overall results. And 
I mean, let's be honest, we're consumer driven, we're business driven. Our leadership needs to reflect what our consumer reflect, right? What our marketplace looks like. And so um, I, I hope that we don't go back. I hope we continue to hold each other accountable. And this is kind of where um, I started off earlier, Keith, of every single one of us can influence a leader, can influence an organization, can influence our churches and our book clubs. And you don't need to be in a corporate setting to have these uncomfortable conversations. We need to let them know you need to get comfortable being uncomfortable because that's the only way we can all pro, you know, continue to progress and, and make change happen. Okay. For the sake of time, uh, Megan, I don't know if you have uh, some questions out there for the audience, uh, but if you do, we can start with that. I did want to ask a student question, but that's fine. We can go right to the audience for the sake of time. We do. We do have a, a few audience questions. Our first one is, what about your experience in CLA prepared you for doing the work you are doing now with regard to racial justice? I'll throw it out to the group. I think uh, what happened in CLA um, is that, especially at the U of M and being a person of color at the U of M, there was a uh, there was an open mic uh, and um, called Voices Merging and. If you remember Voices Merging, um, it was a lot of folks of color getting together and speaking. And it wasn't really a lot of spaces like that around the U of M, but it was so profound because it went for so long. And you really could, you really could find like a network of folks uh, that look like you uh, with melanin and, and really say some ra radical things, you know, for, for the campus, but amongst everybody, it was just our experience. Um, and, you know, although it was it was messy sometimes, it was it was, you know, there was there was arguments sometimes there was, you know, love there. It was it was nothing that you wouldn't see at a family dinner table. And so it, having that experience kind of set things up for how can you create community amongst a place where you don't see it so often, you know, and, and, and really, if we're being honest, you know, the U of M is. Is, is a fairly white place, uh, just as Minnesota is as well. And when you can find community and create that and sustain it and then amplify it, uh, you really do learn how to do that outside of the campus and, 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 and keep that going. Um, so yeah, that was one thing in CLA that I learned about some of the work that I'm doing right now in creating community, especially down at George Floyd Square, uh, especially in working with uh, young folks of color as a paraprofessional in special ed rooms and resource rooms. Um, that's, that's definitely lent to the work that I'm doing now. Just piggyback on that question. Uh, what advice would you guys give students who were like you on this campus on any other campus and how they can get involved with social justice work uh, if they you know, have seen, I mean, they're growing up in a different era than you guys did, right? Mm -hmm. So it may be easier, but uh, what, what advice would you give students who wanna get involved in, in uh, social justice work? I think, I think Tussan made a great point about um, like finding spaces and I think it's about building tribe. And I think, you know, no matter what, what era you're participating or growing up in, like the, the truth remains that if you can find a space where you're celebrated rather than a space where you're tolerated, then it's going to be a win for you and the community that you that you come up with. Uh, find the people that's going to be with you shooting in the gym because that's the season that you're in as a student is, you know, stepping into that the space where you're growing and learning and um, making those mistakes that help you understand how to move forward. 
Maggie, you got another question? We do, we have another question. Um, Amber mentions that people of color did not cause systemic re racism. Is there a role for old white people like me, the audience member and friends of like mind to be of help to the communities and people of whom Amber speaks? And Amber, you can respond and certainly the sure. rest of the group can. I'll try to be brief. Number one um, is to be able to um, take leadership from people of color um, and indigenous folks and black folks who have um, intimate experience to how racism, systemic racism has affected their lives across all different types of backgrounds. Um, and you can do that in so many ways. You can do that through connecting with people locally um, and just seeing how you can be of support to them. Um, and that's been a huge thing over the past few months um, as people have been mobilizing a lot to be of um, direct support to people in our local community. Um, also just growing in your own knowledge, being able to, to do your own research, to read, to watch documentaries, to just really be able to strengthen your information and then be of influence to people in your network. Um, in particular, like, Talk, have the uncomfortable conversations with your families, have the uncomfortable conversations with your friends, your colleagues, you um, will most likely be more well received um, than I or than myself or anyone else um, because of that personal relationship. Um, and that's just the nature of it, you know, even if that means that you're able to break through that first kind of layer and help them to also see that they also should be taking leadership from um, other people of color, Black folks, Indigenous folks in their, in their networks as well. But you can be that first sphere of influence from them, for them. That's often how we have to do this work, very grassroots, conversation to conversation within people in our networks and to not be afraid of that. Because you have much less to lose when it comes to um, how you're privileged as like an older white male. Um, I believe that what the question said, you have much less to lose than me or anyone else. <laughs> um, and being able to take that, um, be able to take that privilege and be able to like actually weaponize it for justice um, and not for further oppression, I think is very important. I wanted to piggyback on that in tandem with what Keith, the, the question he asked two questions ago and how do you keep the momentum and the movement going? And what the short answer that goes into what Amber was speaking to as well is that a lot of white folks can stay at the table. Now that you know you've been enlightened to what's going on, you can stay at the table now. Stay here, don't leave it. And I, I always pose this question in forums to white people. Have you not had this conversation because you don't want to or because you haven't had to? And when, when they engage with that question, it really helps them understand, okay, how have I skated for this long without having to have this conversation? When you look back to 2013, Terrence Franklin was murdered by the Minneapolis Police Department in Uptown, execution style in the basement. But the reason why nobody showed up, and we, we, we did show up, you know, Black folks did, but the reason why you didn't see as many white folks is because it wasn't filmed. And so when you get to this whole idea of keeping the momentum going in a movement, it shouldn't take another brother getting filmed being killed by the, by the police. It should take just you, you know, at, reacting off of your own motivation and, and wanting to stay in this in the pursuit for racial justice and justice in general for your community. Because when we all do better, we all do better. I mean, as cliche as it is, it's gonna help the entirety of the community. Keep, keep them coming, Megan. 
Sure. Um, I think, yeah, we might have time for just one more. We'll see. We'll see how many we can get to. How do you feel Black alumni can affect change at the U of M for the group? So I think there's a ton of opportunity to engage um, with different departments, to connect with other Black alum um, through organizations like the University of Minnesota's Black Alumni Network, um, shameless plug. But I would say reach out to um, the departments that you engage with as a student. Um, I know that I've got calls scheduled with folks who are representatives of the Afro department, um, engage with the Black Student Union, engage with ASA and other, or other student-led organizations to provide insight uh, information because I think there's a, there's a huge uh, gap, a huge uh, opportunity gap for students who are coming out of the university to be prepared for professional life beyond student life. And so there are a ton of students who are right now trying to figure out what the next move is gonna be after graduation or even as they move from junior to senior year, what have you, um, who, could, who could really benefit from the insight and expertise that you have as an alum. Hey Megan, I'll probably jump in that as well and just um, speak from you know how I actually attended the University of Minnesota, what my experience was. I think um, I am a product of CLA, but I also came through General College, which is no longer in existence, right? Um, when you think about um, the access to the University of Minnesota has been drastically impacted over the last 10, 15, 20 years, right? And so as Black alumni, we can't forget that, um, yes, our personal success and success after college is important, but what are we doing as the Alumni Association to be able to go back and help recruit, right? What are we doing to look at the organizational, the systematic um, structure of our university? Are we, is access to the University of Minnesota uh, a reality for those that are in St. Paul and Minneapolis public schools? Or is the University of Minnesota turning into the Princeton's and the Harvard's of the world where it is borderline impossible to get into? So um, I, you know, I, I want to challenge all of us and I challenge the leadership of CLA and the University of Minnesota to go back and look at the programming that, that we have set, set, set in place, um, you know, what the success looks like, right? So once they enter the University of Minnesota, what does the graduation rate look like and what is that experience on campus? My experience is very different than um, those of my peers that came in that didn't have a community that weren't involved with the Black Student Union, that weren't involved with the LRC and, and, and those organizations that we had, and they're getting lost, right? It is a very huge institute that is hard to kind of maneuver. If you don't know where the resources are, and if you don't have access, if you are a first year student in your family, you know, it, it makes it even harder for you to succeed within um, a really, a large campus that is uh, really difficult to maneuver through. So I would just challenge all of our leaders and, and all of us on the call to, to look at what we can do moving forward to diversify our campus because University of Minnesota Twin Cities campus does not look like our city. Well, I don't know if that's the end, but if it is, Tucson, Ernest, Susie, Amber, thank you, the, the pleasure was mine, it really was. This was a great conversation. And um, 
hopefully we can do it again uh, soon in another context or in the same one. Uh, it's up to CLA and Megan. But uh, I want to thank CLA and the university for giving me the opportunity to facilitate this conversation. It's, it's, it's wonderful. And it's just, it gives me such joy to see where you guys are and, and the great work that you're doing. Uh, so just, just keep it up, just keep it up. Megan. Thank you. And I, I know we had a few more questions come in. We are um, at the end of our, our session, um, but I just wanted to, you know, if there's any last thoughts from our, our panelists, you know, now's, now's the chance for you to, to share those with our audience. Just thank you to the college. Um, I always love to give, give a plug to the Department of African-American and African Studies, of which I am alum. I think all of us have studied under the department. Um, honestly, continue to support these institutions, um, these spaces within our larger institution that um, is, is really trying to break the mold, is really trying to challenge us and challenge young people as they are growing in their like, matriculation um, to be the citizens that we need. Um, and I just wanna continue to, to share my love for the department and what it's done for me um, and continuously ask for your support as they are in their uh, 51st year at the University of Minnesota and to support all of the ethnic studies departments as well. Great, thank you so much. And I just wanna say thank you to Professor Mays and our alumni panelists, Amber, Ernest, Susie, Toussaint, thank you for joining us today and for engaging in such a great conversation. And thank you for participating in the What's Next Roundtable brought to you by the College of Liberal Arts, where we are reimagining the 21st century liberal arts experience as a diverse, energetic community of students, faculty, staff, alumni, and donors. We seek to make a difference at home and throughout the world. And together we are shattering expectations of what a liberal arts college can be. There are two What's Next Roundtables coming up. The first on November 19th at 7 p.m. will explore what's next in the K-12 education. And the next one on December 3rd at 12 p.m. will discuss transformation in policing and will be a bit more specific to Minneapolis. You can learn more about these upcoming events at z.umn.edu slash CLA what's next, all one word, no apostrophe. Again, that's z.umn.edu slash CLA what's next. So thank you again for joining us. Stay well and have a great afternoon. Thank you guys. Thank you all.